Well, ever since the beginning, God's people have been asking themselves an ever-important question. How are we to live as God's people? God has called us out. He wants us to be holy and, and separate and different from the world. But what does that really look like? The answer for Israel in the Old Testament was rather simple. God gave them his law, the law of Moses, contained within were 613 commands, such that God's people would be very holy and very separate from the world around them as they adhered to those commands. But even still, even those 613 commands didn't cover everything. The law left some questions. For instance, how are we to live as God's people where where God's word is silent? Take, for example, God's command to Israel to obey, keep the Sabbath holy, do no work on the Sabbath. Well, what does that include? What about mowing your lawn or walking down the street? What about cooking dinner? Does that count as work on the Sabbath? See, the law doesn't answer all those endless questions. So how were God's people to live? Well, do you know how the Jews eventually answer that question? They decided to come up with some of their own laws to fill in the blanks. This started with good intentions to keep them from violating God's law. And that's how they came up with a a true law for them, which stated you can walk no further than 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. But this is not what God wanted them to do. The Jews not only missed the intention of God's law, but all they ended up creating was a man-made system of works that produced self-righteousness, not true righteousness. This is the definition of legalism. And when Jesus came, he reserved his harshest words of rebuke and condemnation for such people. But that question still stands, though. How are we to live as God's people in areas where God's word is silent? Speaking of Jesus, when he came, he called out a new people, the church, to follow him. This church is to likewise be holy and separate from the world in following Christ. But again, we ask, what does that look like for the church? Well, when Jesus came, so came a new covenant. With the new covenant came a new law. So we're no longer under the law of Moses, but now what the New Testament calls the law of Christ. In this new law, there's just two commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. So that that is how God wants his people to live. But still, that that question remains, what about those areas we're just not sure that the Bible doesn't talk about? I mean, much of this discussion is black and white. Murder is obviously wrong. It's very clearly not loving to God or loving others. So is arson. You know, there's no prohibition in Scripture against arson. But we don't need a command telling us don't light fires because it's very clearly not loving to God, not loving to others. But what we're really talking about here is these morally neutral activities, actions which are not evil in and of themselves. And for many such actions, it's not always so clear how they relate to loving God, loving others. So Christians are often confused, still left wondering, how are we to live as God's people in areas where the word is silent? For example, what about going out dancing, going to the movies, getting a tattoo? Does that fit within loving God and loving others or not? Are we not supposed to do these things because the world does them? I mean, how far do we take that? And who says? The Bible is silent on these specific issues, so where is our guidance? Well, I'll tell you the answer that many churches have come up with. Many churches have resorted to making their own laws. And again, yes, they have fell into that same error of the Jews and repeated the mistake of legalism. 
They've created their own definition of sin and man-made system of works, righteousness, that does not please God. Churches have created their own list of laws such that if you violate them, you become a sinner and you may not even be saved, even though these issues are not even mentioned in the Bible. Examples might include no drinking, no smoking, no dancing, no secular music, movies or TV, no tattoos, no piercings, no wild dress or hairstyles, no observing Halloween, no playing cards. The list goes on and on and on. And I bet many of you have come from churches that had these official or unofficial lists of things you you can't do. But that is nothing more than the deadly error of legalism reborn. Needless to say, that's not the answer. But I still have that question, though. Okay, well, what are we to do and not to do as God's people in all these areas where the Bible doesn't say anything? Okay, so we're not going to make a list of rules and laws. That's good. But that doesn't necessarily mean all those things are good and right, does it? I mean, should we, as Christians, live like the world in areas like dancing, drinking, smoking, or not? Are some Christians right by abstaining from these things or wrong? Is this what it means to be godly versus worldly, and and how do we determine that? Well, this is what we've been trying to figure out for the past two weeks. Overall, we've been doing a study on Christian liberties, and by this we're referring to all those activities which are seemingly morally neutral, in Scripture, in fact, they're really not even mentioned in Scripture. The Bible teaches that in Christ we have freedom and liberty to live, but how far does that freedom go? Still, like, what should we do? What should we not do? How do we know? How should we exercise our liberty in Christ? Well, first, we've learned that we are not under law, but grace. That basically summarizes message number one. We spent pretty much a whole sermon establishing from Scripture this essential truth that we're not under the law anymore, but but grace. We live by grace. And so the Christian life is not a life of burden and fear, as if we have to earn God's favor by keeping his commands. Rather, we already please God simply by his grace, which we receive through faith in Christ. And in Christ, God makes us new. He makes us righteous and gives us the Spirit. And that leads to the second big point. First, we learned, as Paul put it, we are not under law, but grace. And secondly, we are not led by the law, but by the Spirit. That essentially boils down sermon number two. We are under the new covenant, not the old. So the law of Moses no longer directly applies. That doesn't mean we're lawless. We now have the law of Christ. But even this we relate to differently now. We're not trying to keep this law of Christ, loving God, loving others, as if we're trying to earn God's favor. Rather, we keep this law because we we love him, because we want to, because we've been made new. Specifically, God's spirit within us now produces desires that want to obey God and his ways. Although we still have the sinful flesh, which desires nothing but sin, now we have the spirit. And as we follow the Spirit's desires, so we are being led by the Spirit, we are walking by the Spirit, and then we will bear fruit for God. So that is how we are to live this Christian life, by the Spirit, by walking by the Spirit. And the Spirit will guide us into right living. But even after all that, two sermons worth, that nagging question still remains How are we to live as God's people in areas where God's word is silent? 
The answer to that question we've established is still to walk by the Spirit. But that question is, how do we discern the Spirit's leading in what we might call gray area issues? How can we tell given a, for a given action, is the Spirit leading me there or is that my own flesh? Because it's not always so obvious. Sometimes it's black and white. Sometimes it's gray. Thankfully, though, God's Word has given us guidance on this as well. And starting last week, we finally began to answer that practical question. Specifically, I introduced you to the tests of Christian liberty. The tests of Christian liberty. The Apostle Paul is especially helpful in, in this teaching. Romans 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 6, 8 and 10. He really lays it all out. And as you study these passages, you basically come away with a series of tests or questions to run through when determining if you have a liberty or not. I actually like to picture these tests as a series of doors. If you're here last week, this is familiar to you. Picture like four consecutive doors lined up. Each door has questions written on it. And as you approach each door, you must ask the questions of this given action or liberty. And only if you pass all the questions can you proceed through to the next door. And only if you make it through all four doors can you be assured you have this liberty and you may proceed. You can know with confidence the Spirit is leading you and freeing you to act. But if you fail to pass any door, if you can't affirm any of these questions, well, you know it is not of the Spirit. The Spirit is not leading you, therefore do not proceed with this action or potential liberty. Overall, this is just a simple but hopefully memorable way for you to understand what Scripture teaches about our liberties, guidance for our liberties. These tests or questions are designed simply to help us discern if we're being led by the Spirit or led by the flesh for any given action. And that's really all we we need to know, right? If you're being led by the Spirit, go ahead. If you're being led by the flesh, stay away. It's that simple. Last time, we only made it through door number one, which is the door of others, as I put it. On this door are written three questions. Question number one, does it stumble others? Question two, does it bring peace? And question three, does it edify Only if you can correctly answer these three questions may you proceed through to door number two. Now, we don't have time to recap those three questions or door number one. So if you weren't here, just hop on our website, get that last week's sermon, especially because you spent a lot of time tackling that big issue of what it means to stumble another brother. Overall, though, I'll just say door number one, it's merely just a test of loving others. If your potential liberty in any way is unloving to others, Do you think the Spirit is leading you to be unloving? You have your answer already. But if your desire is loving to others, well, so far so good. But you're not done. You only made it through door number one, the door of others. There's still three more to continue, or to consider rather, and we will continue to do so now. Let's continue on now and finish the study up by resuming these tests of Christian liberty, giving more guidance on discerning the Spirit's leading in our actions. So making through door number one, the door of others, you show up and you see door number two, the door of self. The door of self. And on this door are written three more questions, all obviously pertaining to self. Not only does God want you to be concerned with others when you're considering a given liberty, he also wants you to think about yourself 
in some areas, and these are very important to consider. So here's three questions. Number one, does it enslave me? Does it enslave me? You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We'll get there in a little bit, but I want you to turn there anyway for the sake of time. As you're turning, I'll read for you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. This is a perfect verse teaching that just because you're free to do something doesn't mean you should. Even morally neutral activities can become sin if they master us. The word he used there for master, exousiazo, means to rule or to reign over, to have power over, to enslave. That's what sin wants to do, to effectively re-enslave you to its ways, even though you've been set free in Christ. It's just like God told Cain from the very beginning. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Understand the deceitfulness of your own flesh. It wants to take you down the road of sin and effectively re-enslave you, even though you've been set free in Christ. And also understand that your flesh will often deceive you through lawful Christian liberties. So you have to beware. Let's just go ahead and use maybe one of the most controversial examples to some. Gambling. Can Christians gamble? You're at the Vegas airport. You're passing through. You got 15 minutes to kill. You got five bucks. There's penny slots. Can you play? Can you gamble? You might be surprised to learn that the Bible contains no prohibitions against gambling or betting. Did you know that? There's not a single command for or against gambling. That doesn't mean it's necessarily okay, but just by that omission, this is what we're talking about by gray area issues. The Bible doesn't say. Some would argue gambling is a Christian liberty. And if you approach it merely as a form of entertainment, where you plan on just losing all that money as like entertainment, then it's fine. It's really no different than spending 100 bucks to watch a three-hour football game. You get nothing out of it but entertainment. Is it different? Some would say no. And you do have to be consistent. I bet most of you here have a retirement account. Is your retirement account in a mutual fund? Then you're gambling. Because you're taking your money and you are risking it in the stock market with the hopes that it will give you more money without working for it. That's pretty much the definition of gambling. So you can argue that with extreme self-control, Christians can approach gambling as a form of simple entertainment with moderation, and maybe so. That could be fair. But there's more to consider. You have to consider your heart's desire. Fair question for anything we do. Why, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to gamble? Is it just a, a little 20 minutes of, of fun? Not, not a problem. But if, if your desire is fueled by covetousness and greed, which for many it is, right, Do you think the spirit is producing that desire or the flesh? That's a no-brainer. And for you, in that case, gambling would be wrong. In addition, you have to ask this question here, does it enslave me? Which is why I picked gambling. Because for a lot of people, that's a big deal. It, It quickly enslaves them. A lust for more leads them to try and gain wealth without working for it. And instead of being wise stewards of what God has given them, they just squander it all leading to ruin for themselves and their families. 
And you can be certain God's Spirit would never lead you to do that. But hopefully you get the point. There's not always easy yes or no answers. You must examine your heart and your desires. And through these questions, discern if you're being led by your own flesh into a potential sin or the Spirit is freeing you to act. And it will be different for different people, such as the nature of Christian liberties. There are other commonly enslaving questions, or rather issues, to be aware of. Alcohol can be particularly enslaving to some people. I sadly know all too many Christians who start off by lawfully exercising their liberty, maybe they'll have a glass of wine with dinner, no problem. But one glass turns into two, then three, then four, over time. Soon a habit forms, soon it's hard liquor, soon they feel they need that drink to feel good, to feel normal after work. And although they won't admit it, they've been enslaved. And they could, in essence, be an alcoholic without even knowing it, living in denial. That's what your flesh will do to you if you don't ask these questions. Is this enslaving me? Same goes for lust. Anything even remotely related to sexual sin can be particularly enslaving. That's what Paul goes on to say, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You might say, you know, I'm just going to exercise my liberty, watch a little TV. Nothing wrong with that, right? Sure, TV is not inherently evil. But there's plenty of evil on TV. So you have to ask, is what you are watching secretly a cloak for your lusts? Are you using TV to secretly satisfy those fleshly desires and just using the excuse, oh, I'm I'm free to do it, not being aware that your flesh is tricking you to watch that one show. Maybe you say, but I have to watch that show. Everybody's watching it. It's so good. That's how your flesh will deceive you to go where you should not go. If you sense any danger like this, the right thing to do is abstain, or better yet, run away. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 after this. In verse 18, he says, flee immorality. Just run away. Why? Why does he say that? He says, because you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit made to dwell within you. So glorify God with your body, he goes on to say. Does that fit with everything we've been studying? I mean, earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, like we read, I will not be mastered by anything. Do you know why that is? It's because we already have a master, and that is the Lord. We are free in Christ at the same time that we've been enslaved to Christ. He is our master. That's the whole point now. We belong to God. We live to serve and please him, joyfully so, because our old master, sin, only ever gave us eternal death, but our new master, the Lord, he gives us eternal life. I very happily serve this master. Still, though, we must take care not to return to our old master and effectively be re-enslaved. Listen to 1 Peter 2.16. He says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Do you see the duality? We're free men, but at the same time, we're slaves of God. Don't use your freedom in God as a covering for evil. See, within God's bounds, there's so much liberty and freedom and peace to just live life and enjoy life. But don't let your flesh trick you to use your liberty to go outside of those bounds. Any activity, no matter how wholesome, 
if it enslaves you and masters you more than Christ, becomes unprofitable. Because God wants you to set your desires and affections ultimately on him. Nothing else can take that spot. And if it does, it becomes sin and your liberty becomes wrong. So with this first question, you really have to humble yourself and be honest with yourself. Does it enslave me? Your flesh wants to deceive you, and that will include denial to any form of enslavement. But if you are serious about overcoming sin and walking by the Spirit, just try asking those who love you in your life, because chances are, even if you've been deceived and you can't see something, they can. And they can perhaps tell you, I think you've been enslaved here. And take that seriously if you're serious about walking before the Lord. Either way, you must ask this first question on the door of self, does it enslave me? Question number two, does it lead me into temptation? Relatedly, but different, does it lead me into temptation? On several occasions, Jesus taught his disciples to flee temptation and to beware entering it. For example, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, you know the prayer, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Also in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 41, he told the disciples, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's like the past two sermons, pretty much summarized in one verse. We talked last time about the danger of stumbling others, whereby your actions entice them to sin. Well, here you also need to worry about stumbling yourself. Your flesh is trying to entice you to sin. And so if you remember, Jesus taught a very radical response to your own flesh. Matthew 5:29. if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And obviously he's not talking about your literal body part, but he's talking about your sinful flesh. Radical amputation of your sin nature. Throw it out. What is temptation? It's not sin. It is the opportunity to sin. More specifically, we learned your flesh has these desires after the fall built in And they don't go away in this life. Think of it like a can of gasoline. It's not always on fire, but it doesn't take much to ignite it. And temptations, they're like little matches. You get too close, and soon your fleshly desires will incite, or be incited rather, and ignite, and give birth to the fire of sin. God doesn't want this. You don't want this. Hence, his counsel to flee temptation, to find the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Stay away from the matches. If you're covered in gas, don't go around a match. A huge verse on this is Romans 13.14. Paul uses this verse to transition into his teaching on Christian liberties in chapter 14. But Romans 13.14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in accordance to its lusts. The word for lust there, don't think only sexual. The word for lust just means strong desire. And so our sin nature comes with these strong desires for sin. Notice, though, he doesn't say, just get rid of your lusts or stop having these lusts. You see, we can't do that always. It's part of our sin nature. They they may not go away your entire life. 
these desires you have. But like a fire, you can starve them out. Make no provision for the fleshly lust, he says. Make no provision for the flesh. In practical terms, if you know what incites your flesh, if you know your strongest temptation triggers, stay far away. That makes sense, right? To just stay far away. And this is super relevant to Christian liberties because all too often, by exercising your liberty, you might be walking headlong into temptation, which would be not the spirit leading you, but the flesh. So, for example, do you have the liberty to drink? Sure, you do. But if your flesh struggles with drunkenness, don't go to a bar. Don't keep alcohol in the home, right? Just stay away from temptation. Do you have the liberty to surf the internet and watch someone call amusing videos on YouTube? Yes, you have that liberty. But if you struggle with pornography, you would be right to limit your own liberty as to avoid temptation. So maybe don't go on the internet when you're alone. Like we just talked about, your flesh is looking for little safe harbors for its lusts. These lusts or desires, they're part of our fallen nature. They may not go away in this life. But the battle is about starving them out and replacing them with greater desires for the Lord, which comes from the Spirit. So fight that battle. Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. I'm free to walk into that bar. You're free. But if you struggle with that, you are creating an opportunity for the flesh through your freedom. And so, well, you have your answer. Don't do it. Don't do it. He says, make no provision for the flesh. Stay away from all the matches by fleeing temptation. Again, though, I hope you see, this is going to look differently for different people. You may have a person over here, and this action gives them no temptation. They're totally fine with this action, and they may proceed, at least through this question. person over here, they may be incredibly tempted by that action or situation. They may feel all these flaming arrows attacking them, and so it would be obviously wise for them to abstain. Certainly, you can know that if you are being led into temptation, it is not the spirit leading you. It is the flesh. And so abstain. Stay away. Well, there's one more important question on the door of self. Question number three. Does it violate my conscience? Does it violate my conscience? Last week we talked about not stumbling other believers with our actions, whereby you entice them to sin against their conscience. You have to wor- I also have to watch out for sinning against your own conscience, an equally big deal to God. First off, what is the conscience? It is your moral compass, your innate sense of right and wrong, programmed by God in the hearts of all people. It functions like an early warning system. It's like those new cars. If you veer out of your lane, it starts to warn you. Well, if you are morally going off track, your conscience will warn you and say, this is wrong, this is bad, don't do that. Your conscience, therefore, is an important guide for knowing right and wrong. But it's not a perfect guide. We're fallen sinners. So your conscience is not infallible. It can be wrong. It can be muddied. It can even be hardened. It merely holds us accountable to the standard we already possess as well. It's not a source of revelation. 
It's just keeping us accountable to what we already believe is good and bad. Therefore, for it to function properly, you need to calibrate it to God's word and God's standard. John MacArthur gives a perfect illustration. I can't improve, so I'll have to quote it. He says, quote, The conscience functions like a skylight, not like a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light you expose it to and by how clean you keep it, cover it, or put it in total darkness, and it ceases to function, end quote. You see, God gave us our conscience to help us know right from wrong in all those areas not covered in the word. So if you want to do what is right, though, you need to keep a clean and clear conscience well illumined by the light of God's word. Now, there's certainly a lot more we can say about conscience in Scripture. Well, that'll suffice for now. The real question we're getting at here, though, is why is it such a big deal to God if we violate our conscience? I mean, what if our conscience was actually wrong? Why would violating it then still be sinful? For example, pretend your conscience tells you it is wrong to eat meat. It's just a sin. We would say, no, that's not true. Scripture affirms that's not true. You need to recalibrate your conscience. We would tell that person. But even still, if they believe that, they thought it's wrong and they still do it, they violate their conscience, why is that a sin? Why is that such a big deal to God? The answer is because by violating your conscience, you are committing the same core rebellion as found in all sin. You have an action that you believe is wrong. You think some of this is wrong, yet you still willingly choose to do it. You're revealing a heart of rebellion against God and his ways. That's the definition of sin. You are rebelling against God, even though your conscience may have it off. Even if your conscience is wrong, it still shows a heart that is choosing what it thinks to be sin. And God cares about your heart. That's why it's wrong. I hope you figured out, though, that with most of of these Christian liberty issues, God cares about your heart a lot more than the action itself. Oftentimes, these actions are morally neutral. But if they violate your conscience for whatever reason, you must not proceed. You must submit to your conscience. I told you we'd make our way back to Romans 14, so if you're there, look down at verse 5. He says, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He's talking in the context about observing holy days or holidays. And look, some people believe, some people don't. They're not right or wrong. What matters is you must be convinced in your own mind. It is right. If part of you thinks you're doing wrong in observing or not observing a a given day, then it's wrong for you. Look down at verse 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, speaking of food, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Your conscience can transform something good into something sin, something sinful. Verse 20, he says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil, for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. But then look at verse 22. He says, The faith 
which you have, he's talking about the faith to eat or to not to eat. He says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. You see, there's, there are many activities which to God, they're morally neutral. Meaning if you do them or not, God doesn't condemn you. You're not condemned if you do it or don't do it. Like, for example, hunting. There's nothing in scripture that even suggests God is opposed to hunting. In fact, in Acts 10, God told Peter, take, kill, and eat in regard to pork. But for various reasons, some people, they're just personally bothered by hunting. Many reasons, you know, there's, there's too many to count. But for whatever reason, it violates their conscience. Their conscience tells them this is wrong. If I pull that trigger and kill that deer, it's just wrong. Their conscience tells them. And so for them, to pull that trigger would be a sin. Because it would condemn them, verse 23, for they're not acting by faith. In doing something they think is wrong, they're revealing a heart of sin and rebellion. And so they must submit to their conscience. Even if your conscience is out of whack, you're still doing what you think is wrong to God. And that is just the same. Your recourse here is to inform and recalibrate your conscience, according to God's word. But until you can get to the point where you can do a given activity and be fully convinced in your own mind it is right, you must abstain. Your conscience would be violated. It is telling you something's wrong. You must take care not to stumble others so that they would violate their conscience. You must take care not to stumble yourself and violate your own standard. Of course, Calibrate yourself to God's word, but you are bound by your conscience. Does it enslave me? Does it lead me into temptation? Does it violate my conscience? These are three extremely vital questions you must ask of yourself before proceeding with any Christian liberty. And of course, you must answer no to all three, truthfully, to proceed. If you can do that, though, if you can pass these three questions and the three before on the door of others, Well, then door number two opens up the door of self and you come to now door number three, which we'll call the door of the world, the door of the world. Here you are considering your actions in relation to the world. And on this door, there's only one question written. Question one, does it hinder my witness? Does it hinder my witness? Turn now to first Corinthians chapter nine. First Corinthians nine. You might ask at first, why should my actions be judged or limited by those in the world? And they don't even believe in God or regard his ways. So why should I change because of them? I mean, sure, you can see how we should limit ourselves so as not to stumble our brothers in Christ. But those in the world, they're already enslaved to sin. So why am I concerned about them? The answer primarily is our witness. It's true, we're not worried about causing unbelievers to sin per se because they're already enslaved to sin. Our real concern with the lost is to lead them out of sin to Christ, that they might find his grace and his mercy and forgiveness. For this, we must witness the gospel to them. But here's the point. If you know that by exercising a given liberty, you will hinder your witness before another, you still still think you should do it. 
We're bound by the law of love, which includes the love for the lost. Loving them means seeking their greatest good. Their greatest good is salvation. So out of that love, we should do nothing that would hinder our witness to them. Now, how do you hinder your witness before the lost? Well, primarily, it's by giving needless offense. By giving needless offense. Paul has a lot to say about that in 1 Corinthians 9. He spent all of chapter 8 addressing Christian liberties. Then in chapter 9, he applies it to himself. Paul, namely as a minister of the gospel, he says he has the right, the liberty, to derive an income from the gospel ministry. But he chose not to. He limited his own liberty. Why? Because at the time, there were plenty of greedy false teachers around, and he didn't want to hinder his witness and be associated with greed, so he chose better to just abstain. He limited his liberties in many ways around unbelievers, not just with money, so as not to offend them. Look what he says in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. You see, we owe nothing to the world. We're free from them and their ways. But out of love, we can accommodate them in certain non-sinful ways so as to bolster our effectiveness for the gospel. And so look what he says in verse 20. He applies it to Jews. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. I mean, look, Paul is Jewish, we know that, but more than anybody he teaches were not under the law of Moses. So, for example, when he became a Christian, he would have gotten his first taste of bacon, and it would have been totally fine. But when witnessing to other Jews, Paul knew that they still did not know better. They are still held captive by the law. So Paul, if he wanted, he could have flaunted his liberty in Christ before them and eaten a pork sandwich. But he chose not to. Why not? Because he knew that doing so, especially given his Jewish background, would just totally shut down his witness before those Jews. They would not even hear him out. They'd be so offended that they would just close the door and it'd be over. He would have no gospel opportunity. So in order to keep that door open, he willingly limited his liberty. Same for Jews, same for Gentiles. Verse 21, he says, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. Again, this is really confirming everything we studied about law and grace, but Paul was not under the law of Moses, but there's nothing wrong with willingly limiting his liberty to accommodate Jews when witnessing to them or Gentiles. Those not under the law, Paul would be happy to, for example, eat what is placed before him. He would not offend them needlessly to not give an offense, or rather to to maintain his witness. Paul knew he wasn't lawless, though. He says here, but under the law of Christ. So he's not talking about, you know, going to the bars with your unbelieving friends and getting drunk so that you can witness to them later. That still doesn't work. Because notice, we're still under the law of Christ. So that, that still applies. Rather, the idea is not giving needless offense. Not giving a needless offense. So if Paul's out there with some Gentiles witnessing and they lay out the stuffed pig, he's going to eat what's placed in front of him. This has some practical application today, I think, especially with food and drink. 
Maybe you're witnessing to a different culture and they present you with a traditional meal and maybe even some wine. And if you decline or, or, or show any ungraciousness, they'll be extremely offended. It actually happened to me back in, you know, before as a believer, but nonetheless, with my grandma, we went to Italy to her hometown and they just threw out this feast and wine. And if you don't eat a lot and drink, they'll be extremely offended. And that offense, for some people, some cultures, some circumstances, these types of offenses can be enough for them to just not even want to hear what you have to say. They will already write you off and shut down that gospel door. So it is better to not give such needless offenses. The basic point is, look, the gospel message, it's offensive enough to sinners. You don't need to add to that offense with your behavior, with your personality. Let the gospel do the offending, not you. Verse 22, he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And you can see the heart behind this. This is a heart of love for the lost. So I'm not gonna, I'm gonna limit my, my liberty willingly. If it's gonna stumble them or hinder my witness, so be it. I want to love them and share with them more. So you must ask this one question of your liberty in reference to the world. Might it hinder my witness? Might it cause a needless offense? If so, abstain. Willingly limiting your own liberty so that you might still find an open door to share the gospel with them. We finish now with number four, the door of the Lord. The door of the Lord. After you make it through the door of others, the door of self, the door of the world. You come to this final door, the door of the Lord, its final test, and this door likewise has but one question written on it. So question one, does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? You might recall 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, after that, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. How often do we quote that verse, but fail to pay attention to the context? That verse, do all to the glory of God, it's in the context of Christian liberties. The eating and drinking in that verse is to not give offense to Jews and Gentiles. That's how you glorify God. But the point is, though, whatever liberty we are considering, nonetheless, it must be done to God's glory. It has to be done with the honor of God's name in mind. And if not, if you have an activity that will be not glorifying to God or dishonor his name, you can be absolutely sure the Spirit is not leading you to that desire. This one's pretty simple, though. How do you know if a given liberty is glorifying to God? Well, here I think it's safe to say that if you made it through the first three doors, you pass all those tests, you covered your bases, your heart is right, then as you proceed by faith, you will be glorifying God. But if you have failed to pass through any door, if you could not answer any of those questions, then you can know this action is not glorifying to God for sure. So in a way, you can picture this fourth door being unlocked. If you make it through the first three, the fourth one will open for you automatically. If you fail to pass through any of the other doors, you fail any of the other questions, well, you can know you are not, <clears throat> not being led by the Spirit 
but by the flesh. Altogether, from principles in Scripture, we can put this all together and, and summarize these eight critical questions to ask of any potential liberty. Does it stumble others? Does it bring peace? Does it edify? Does it enslave me? Does it lead me into temptation? Does it violate my conscience? Does it hinder my witness? Does it glorify God? You put those together, you pass the test, you may proceed confident that the Spirit is freeing you and leading you to act. Hopefully this provides a helpful and memorable way for you to think through this issue of Christian liberties and try and discern the Spirit's leading in your own life. As a final note here, one last comment, simply to take caution not to abuse your liberty. We talked before about the danger of turning your liberty into a cloak for the flesh, so already watch out for that. But in addition, I also want to caution you against judgmentalism, which is the other side of abusing Christian liberties, judgmentalism. Many of these issues, they're, they're tricky. They're not so easily sliced. There are different Christians who have different views, strong views, and that's where division occurs. The challenge comes especially when you have someone who's utterly convinced that something is not a matter of liberty or preference, but is actually sin. And so when they see Christians doing that thing, even though it's not mentioned in the Bible, they believe they're actually sinning. So what do you do if that's you? What should you do if you feel your convictions are not a matter of liberty, but sin, even though these issues aren't in Scripture? And there are many people like that. Well, I want to give you a final note of counsel here, because this is where the sharpest division occurs among Christians. In such a case, I would say your convictions may be good. But if the issue in question is not addressed in Scripture, you must be humble. You know, regarding black and white sin issues in Scripture, we are dogmatic. We're not going to budge an inch with what Scripture says is sin. But for these other matters, look, if you think something is super wrong, by all means, appeal to your brother. Make a case from Scripture why you think it is wrong. But you have to realize that to most, it's not going to appear so black and white. So you must simply show grace and kindness and tolerance in love. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't save or sanctify or change people. If the person is getting liberty wrong and they're in fact sinning, let God judge or discipline them. He will. That's what Paul actually said in Romans 14. He says in verse 10, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, he says, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm not talking about condemnation to hell. We're talking about God's discipline. But he says, look, you can appeal. You can, you can work with them. But this judgmentalism is not for you. Let God discipline and judge them if they are getting it wrong. You, meanwhile, graciously appeal to them as to your brother. Pray for them. Still love them. Still edify them, even if they are weak and immature in the faith. But just beware this harsh spirit of judgment. God takes pride, arrogance, and strife just as seriously as their potential sin. So beware splitting his church over issues that aren't even found in the Bible. Tread carefully, humbly, and graciously, just like God deals graciously with us, right? I mean, we still sin. Sometimes we get it wrong. 
Sometimes we, we violate our conscience. We let the flesh get the best of us. We stumble. Yet without excusing our sin, God is ever gracious with us, restoring us through Christ. And he calls us to extend that same grace to others. So in all things, when it comes to Christian liberties, just make sure you are walking in love. And all that means that you would never harm your, your brother or sister in Christ. Romans 14 Again, 17 and 18, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let that be a final guide for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. Study in in Christian liberties from your word. You still give us direction. We want to know. We're your people. We love you. You have saved us in Christ. You've called us to yourself to be holy and separate. Yet sometimes we wonder, how do we live as your people, especially in these areas where your word just doesn't say? Yet, Lord, we thank you for the guidance you've given us. You freed us from the law and placed us under grace. You freed us from the law and given us your spirit. And now we can please you by simply walking by the spirit, following the spirit's leading. And we thank you you've also given us guidance to know and discern the spirit's leading through what we've studied this, this morning. I pray we take this to heart. We examine ourselves in our, in our heart and all of our actions. May we not be deceived by our own flesh into doing what we should not. Lord, we, we want to submit to you. We want to do what is right. And so may we have a, an attitude of willingly limiting whatever liberty we might have, considering others, considering self, considering the Lord and the world as well, Lord. Guide us in all these things, and and may we overall simply be glorifying to you. It's what we want to do. You're worthy, for you've loved us with such a great love. So we offer up our lives to you in love. May you do with them as you see fit, and may we walk rightly before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.